Today's flow is very, very candid and it's very easy. We're going to largely be doing this as a Q&A members. For those, of us, uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, you did all share a bunch of questions during registration and I will be taking, uh, I'll be moderating and taking those with Ashwini. We're going to mix them up. So the chat box is always is completely open for you to drop your questions as we go along. And once we pick that up, if Ashwini hasn't delved into that topic or what you've asked already, I'm going to ask you to unmute yourself and ask her. So please, please keep them coming in the chat box. And I think we're good to begin. Ashwini, shall we start? Yeah, let's go. Okay, perfect. So I think I'm going to begin with the most asked question and something I know for a fact hounds pretty much every founder, um, which is, as you scale, how do you actually maintain the right culture in a team? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there are, there is no such thing as a single uh, time scale. It's, it's, you're scaling every couple of years, right? So zero to one looks very different than one to five. Um, I initially thought one to 10 will be one bucket, but I think for us in our journey, one to five has looked very different than five to 10. And uh, 10 to 25, which is the journey we're in right now, uh, is looking very different. And uh, we're already beginning to plan 25 to 50. And it's, um, it's a little hard for us to see right now what that looks like. Um, in terms of number of employees, that has looked like till, till about five, a million, uh, we were about, I would say, 75, 80 employees. Um, and today we're almost 300. Wow. Um, and we expect to be close to 450 within the next year. So I think... I think it's it's important to think of this. I mean, and I, I don't know how many of you are parents, but I am going to bring this very cliche analogy. Um, you know, I am the parent of a seven-year-old and 11-year-old. And, you know, every face looks so different than the previous face, right? You're, you're dealing with a very different set of challenges. You're dealing with very different kinds of... So, and you feel like you've reached a point where, you know, you've hit a milestone. It looks good. There should be no drama. You know, it should be rinse, repeat. You know, everybody keeps saying your rinse, repeat, right? I think this this uh, rinse, repeat scale is that phrase that's so overused in the startup world. Um, you know, I'm equally guilty, but it's one of those things where the minute you feel like you reach that point where everything starts to look familiar, you know, and you're you're seeing people, the, the process is running, you know, in a rinse, repeat kind of form, suddenly something else starts to break, right? Um, and that is classic, you know, thing that the scale is one of those things that you very consciously have to get to a point and then quickly ask yourself, do things stay the same now, right? For another two years and chances are the answer is no. Yeah. Um, so it's really important to ask, I think for us, the way we, you know, the way I kept asking for me if, at every point, I think you don't uh, know if you've arrived or you don't know if, you, if you're if you not constantly reflecting, right? So one of the top things I would say when it comes to culture is be very conscious of what part of the journey you're in and constantly reflect, right? If you have milestones for yourself uh, and for the company, and if you feel like you're somewhere around it, pause and reflect on where you were, where you've come, who are the people that got you here, what are the kinds of practices and culture, you know, that, that kind of got you here as a company, and are those the same things that are going to work for the next phase? Most likely the answer is no, right? And the people that have arrived, you know, like all of these people who suddenly became managers, they were with you from day zero and all of a sudden they're managers, fully grown in-house, everything feels great. You've got to get to that point where you say, okay, is, but is this person scaling, right? Are they the right people to take us from like five to 10? Are you giving them that title because they were loyal and they've been the guys who got you here, right? Through thick and thin, and they've got elbow grease, yeah. which is great. And elbow grease means you have to give them a promotion. But at the same time, the question is, are they the right people to go from, you know, take you to the next point in the journey, right? And I think that ability to reflect when you've arrived at a point and asking where you need to go and is this the same setup and how are you going to scale and you and, and what is it about the culture that got you here right in our case i'll tell you 
the question was always you know people were like you can't build an enterprise co- company out of india you can build a product led growth uh, you know saas startup but you can't do enterprise first you can't do us first you can't do ai first you can't everything was you can't right and and because there's no prior art there's not not too many companies like you have to be in services if you're doing this and so there was a lot of firsts for us and so at some level you know when we hit that five milestone uh, for us it was a question of sitting and going how did we get here it was it was really hard it was incredibly hard and i think for us some you know it we sat up and went well we ended up hiring problem solvers right like that was the answer like we ended up hiring but then this whole 10 to 25 phase we're in we're beginning to realize that this whole problem solving culture is actually you know everybody's able to move in fix the problem and move on who's going to actually take it to completion Yeah. Who's going to actually maintain it? Nobody wants to maintain it anymore. Nobody wants to do support. Nobody wants to do migration of old systems. Nobody wants to do tech debt because everybody is a problem solver now, right? So give me new problems to solve every six months. So for us, it was about constantly evaluating and re-evaluating. Okay, but the culture, MSG is so proud of being this place that everybody who wants to work on the most bleeding edge tech comes to our place. And yet, you know, you have 100, 200 enterprise customers you're going to have to support, right? And, you know, not everybody can be building the next cool new thing or solving the next big problem someone has to like maintain systems and so all of a sudden for us you know that phase was was about sitting up and going okay what do we have to do to turn the company to make the focus slightly different right while continuing to keep that hunger for problem solving like somebody who's just all about getting help so coming back right to really ask yourself what is the dna of the company what is it right um i can tell you companies like freshworks very obvious the sales and marketing is their dna Yes. and and Giris is very proud about it like he set up systems that allow for it right the the story is very clear right and everything you know kind of rides on it if you start looking at uh, certain other companies they'll talk about you know product building product dna like getting the features that is it. that's the company's dna you want people who can clearly build one thing at a time in a very linear form and then kind of you know different companies have different types of hooks and when you have a sales and marketing centric culture it means is a very specific set of things when you are talking about people who can you know it's all about it doesn't matter what challenge comes at you and unknown unknowns are everywhere you can have known knowns known unknowns unknown knowns and unknown unknowns and i would say msd for the first couple of years was largely unknown unknowns right so people literally came in because of the excitement of the company and it was important for us to give it shape give it form and constantly ask ourselves that question at every stage so i think culture comes from many many different places it comes from people it comes from the way they think the way they work together what is at the heart of the company what is most prioritized how do processes work right is there a hierarchy you can't say we want small autonomous teams doing anything they want and then have like a lot of hierarchy in that company like 20 managers for everything you can't have bureaucracy the whole point is to remove so you got to figure out and it works and there is no right or wrong i think is is kind of the takeaway that i have had when it comes to culture you just have to figure out what is the dna of your company how is it that you want to go and then stay true to it yeah no i think you're completely right when you said that work backwards and once you identify the dna i think like you said or uh, things kind of just automatically then not fall into place but they start evolving and depending on the stage that you're in um you know ashwini since we are on the topic of of course scale um another question that had come in and again i feel relevant is you know in startups especially your key people are always donning multiple hats like you know everyone's kind of doing everything and how do you in that case like build processes when you know the main pieces of your puzzle or uh, your key people are constantly doing multiple things is that something you faced when you were building msd that you're cu- currently facing you think you'll always face yeah. and you know would love to hear your two cents yeah. on that no i think we still face that problem we still do um and i think you know there's a debate in fact it's really interesting i have slack channel going where i've invited a bunch of people to come in and kind of comment on this right because this whole path to 50 million looks very different and we've been at, we've been asking ourselves you know we are a company that stresses a lot of uh puts a lot of emphasis on people um people are nodes in our company it's so funny because we are an ai company and everybody says if you really got to scale it's all about systems it's all about autonomous you you got to automate systems you got to automate everything inside your company and yet you know of course we've automated a whole lot inside the company and yet it feels like people are very key the key nodes right 
Um, and, and the question you've got to ask yourself as you scale the company is, if you are adding a lot of nodes, that's actually not a bad thing because then you're starting to go down this small autonomous teams kind of approach where you have a lot of different, you're nurturing leadership, you're creating a layer of people where there's no one node or a handful of nodes are roadblockers, right? As opposed to if you end up creating nodes who are gatekeeping as opposed to problem solving and nurturing, right? It's, so there are many different ways of creating nodes or depending on people who do everything and in some cases, those people end up becoming invisible. That's literally their job, right? To become so invisible, the most key nodes across your company, but they're invisible enough to make the system run around them, right? That's one way of approaching this. Another way of approaching it is very hierarchy-led, right? I do think that in 2021, it's very hard to set up systems like this, although I don't know, depending on which part of the world you're in, I think, uh, you know, I have still seen very hierarchy-driven companies work well. Uh, so you can create nodes that are very, very strong, loud, like very certain types of people that you have very consciously chosen in places of hierarchy to get the job done. Those nodes have very different function. Um, having a group of, you know, nodes that that gatekeep, that whose only job, we have a thing at MSD, which is like, there are no people managers at MSD. No, there are no people managers. There is no such thing as a people manager. Um, managers are all experts in their relevant fields and they are they all have elbow grease, right? Um, so we look at nodes as people that that nurture skill set, that talent, that are also doing it. And it's role model, not by teaching, role model by doing, right? So um, so I think nodes can be very powerful. Uh, that's how I look at people that are that that are T-shaped. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the biggest debate that's in the company right now is do we get more I-shaped people than T-shaped people? And that is generalists versus specialists, right? And uh, clearly we are becoming a company where everybody can do multiple things and we love that. It allows people to go and work across different teams in the company. It keeps people inside the company for a long time. You know, we find that people who have been in the company for longer than two years don't really leave the company, right? Um, it's that zero to two years where we have seen the majority of attrition. So it's one of those things where you can use the idea, the concept of powerful nodes in a very, very interesting ways if you design your organization that way. But you just got to make sure that at no point, you know, any of these people are insecure enough to gatekeep. Right, like you, you, your teams are not your your little fiefdom, right? That's not what it is. Your teams are basically small, very powerful teams that can autonomously get a lot of shit done, right? And and feel powered, you know, empowered to do, uh, make decisions, do a lot of exciting things. So, uh, and the other side of that, of course, is systems don't scale if you're constantly dependent, especially in a talent market like this, like, oh my God, it is hard to find uh, people, right? So, you know, if you wanna scale, how are you gonna, what happens when you don't necessarily continue to find enough of those people, right? So how do you actually accommodate? So I think there's like pros and cons to both, um, but yeah. You know, on that Kanika in the chat box, she actually has a relevant question to uh, this. Kanika, she wanna unmute yourself and ask Ashwini? Sure. Um, hi, Ashwini. So, uh, you know, you were talking about how you can build like these small, like really power autonomous teams and give them a lot of power to kind of decide what to build as well, right? Like, because that's a huge part of autonomy. So how do you kind of keep the checks and balance that it kind of ties in with the overall company vision that everything that each of these teams is building is actually, you know, adding up to a story versus just a bunch of disjointed, they could be powerful things that they build on their own, but could not also add up to a story and it would be too late to kind of yeah. realize that's happened, you know, uh, and because yeah. we follow a kind of pod structure uh, at my company as well. So sometimes towards the end of the quarter, you kind of start realizing that, uh, okay, you know, this is not really tying into anything and like it requires a lot of rework. So are there some things that you do proactively so that that doesn't happen? So two, three things, right? One, uh, what to do does not emerge from the pods. Okay. It's the how that emerges from the pods. The what to do typically comes from business goals, right? So it's very top down from that sense. Okay. Uh, but the what to do is typically sourced also routinely from the keynotes in the pods, right? So it's a bit of a top down, bottoms up 
kind of a thing like should we do this should we not do this if we're making a big major decision for the business to go a certain way this immediate brainstorm with the keynotes across all of these different parts to really think about like should we do it this way should we do or should, should we not do this should we so that's one right the second part of it is uh, um, you know aligning at this stage we never used to do it back then but we do it a lot now which is like you know kpis let's all work together to figure out what is this direction what are we hoping to achieve this year how do you break that into quarters which means you need to have quarterly goals which means no pod is actually functioning without defining quarterly goals and you're being held accountable to the decisions you're making right so autonomy comes with responsibility and everybody needs to understand that right so when you decide to go make a set of choices and spend the money or bring a group of people to do something this constantly checks you are you owe someone something at the end of it right and and there are consequences you come out the other end and there's junk and chances are you're going to be let go right we are a little ruthless when it comes to hiring and firing um uh, and the reason for that is just you know you've got to make sure that those checks and balances exist exist across the company and it's done in the right spirit right so if someone's doing this if someone ends up failing doing something that didn't work out and everything was in its place yeah shit happens failure is totally chill right as opposed to if you didn't bring the rest of the team along you made some decisions very single handedly while consistently it went against the business goals and stuff and the answer is obvious you had no business doing that to begin with so i think the checks and balances are there's a, there has to be like a constant flow between the keynotes across those different pods and the and the top structure or the management structure and and preset goals agreements like there has to be a hypothesis you can't go and experiment without having a hypothesis without planning out the risks without you know because so that's kind of how we we um, go about this got it that was helpful i see grishma has a question which uh, coincidentally was going to be what i was going to ask ashwini do you want to unmute yourself and ask i think a few of us want to know this sure so yeah i mean i'm super curious about the zero to one journey especially when you said that you know you started with more of enterprise than a saas i'm guessing the enterprise plot refers to the fact that your customer base is mainly enterprise and yeah that sounds a lot harder so you know how did you go about acquiring the first few customers and you know what was that journey like yeah it yeah. was uh, it was unbelievably horrible there are days when i sit up and go like it shouldn't be this difficult um but it is and 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 it gets easier with time i can tell you that uh, uh, but for us in the beginning it was everything we were throwing the kitchen sink at it right but i've noticed that at the end of the day bootstrapping a system really involves finding the right kind of people i always tell it, you know founders in their early days like get a demand and get a good group of people who know how to write emails who know how to like message someone on linkedin and who have like be spend enough time to make your website look legit okay and you might not be legit you're absolutely faking it you're not legit so 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 but you got to be really good and this is one of those things that we did very early in the day in the company that i spent a lot of time creating social presence like i had just come back to india like i was a no one i knew no one like i literally had not even kept in touch with my like undergrad people or my college people my school people i had no connections at all and anand my co-founder and my husband is like 100 times worse than me um and it's one of those things where i was like okay where do i begin like how do i go how do i go and so it was all about creating the social social presence it was all about creating enough content you know across channels to getting your story involved in 42 involved i remember back in like 2015 uh creating twitter presence linkedin presence and really kind of getting out there and you know how content creators really make it out there because their content is legit and you know for us it was nobody was writing about ai nobody was writing about you know yeah. this is back in 2015 and allowed us to create a voice and a presence for ourselves right there are lots of people that do a really good job of this i think today um if you think about um aditi of local.ai like same story right like relentless right on on social if you think about um almost all the saas companies today that are out there like they even acquire customers on social right like they're literally talking about it they're they're hooking on to people content they bring they invite 10 people onto a podcast give away their product for free for the first 3 months there are ways today that didn't even exist back in back when you know 5 years ago 6 years ago those those ways didn't exist right so i feel like it's definitely gotten easier um but for us it was just non stop like we showed it uh, 
sorry. We showed up to a couple of events. Like I, I used to do a lot of events in 2015, 2016 in the US. Um, and I kind of got myself, I and, and I had one goal, right? If we ended up spending, um, let's say $5,000, okay, at an event, like, and that included my, uh, obviously I typically end up staying with my, like, my siblings or my cousins or, or at my place that I left back there something we'd make up enough to make sure that we weren't spending more than five to six k and my goal was simple right if I'm spending five to ten k on this event I need to walk away with one customer yeah that was it right that's it because you get one customer or a lead it doesn't even have to be a customer it just has to be a really strong well-qualified lead and it and that's how, like today, I have customers that pay me like a million dollars who I found at events, who basically attended a talk I gave, we hit it off, we casually chatted, we kept in touch for like two years, it took two years to convert these people and they started off as like a $100,000 deal, but like four years later, they're a million dollar customer, right, you're constantly, so I, I, there are lots of ways in which you can do that and I think some of it is just if, if there's one thing that I've learned from, you know, my demand gen guys and my, you know, people who take the time today to reach out to other people, you just got to be shameless. And I think that level of shamelessness, you just got to reach out. You just got to talk to people, keep messaging them, say hi, you know, and you find people, but you got to do it in a very genuine way. And I feel like that genuine part is the difference between making it and not making it. And if you are genuinely able to add value to someone through an email, through a LinkedIn outreach to something in that moment in time, and it has to be genuine, it cannot be salesy, it cannot be, and that's hard, right? Because you're like, what's the right, am I being too aggressive? Am I? And, and we all overthink everything to begin with. I still do, you know, I'm, I'm, I, and so there's, there's a lot of that, but I think if you find that right balance and if you find the person, if you can hire someone who clearly showcases that, right, the right balance between really adding value to someone in a message, giving them a link, keep getting them interested, it, it works, it works. I'm, sub, I'm still surprised as someone who never responds to anyone on LinkedIn, I apologize, it's just really hard and overwhelming to keep track. But as someone who never responds, I am surprised at the kind of people who respond on LinkedIn, right? You're talking about CXOs, CEOs of like all kinds of companies, right? Like the most shiniest logos out there. People take the time to respond on, on LinkedIn and say something, right? And so I think people are very accessible today than they were even a few years ago. So yes, it's hard, but it's possible. You know, I can absolutely, absolutely actually vouch for that because the number of times so I, I was someone who was extremely reserved and never really sent cold emails or just like, you know, reached out to people and what you're saying, sometimes you just reach out and if it's genuine, people actually do respond. And yeah, I, no, I like my biggest learning of 2020, that, that, guys, by the way, that's the reason Ashwin is here as well. She was very, very nice and prompt in responding to us when we reached out and said, hey, do you want to do this? And yeah, a month later, here she is. So I think there's, there's proof like right here. <laughs> I also think it's a numbers game. So that's the one thing that I've also learned from my demand gen team is that you got to hit up 100 people, 10 people will respond. And you got to hit up those 100 people four times. And the 10 people who respond are pretty legit. You know, they're not, they're not the guys or they'll, or they'll tell you off which is fine too. I mean, yeah, whatever. Sure. Sorry, but, but it works. So it's also a bit of a numbers game. No, absolutely. Um, I think Devika had a question that she wants to ask around what drove you to have your own venture. So Devika, do you want to unmute yourself and ask Ashwini? Yeah. Thank you. Hi, Ashwini. Um, you know, I just really wanted to know what sort of was the driving force that led you to begin something of your own versus like, you know, working for another AI company, like a top-notch company, what drove you to begin something of your own, essentially? Well, I took the time to get enough experience. So I spent uh, over 10 years at Intel and I was in the Bay Area and uh, I worked with a lot of different, different types of companies, a lot of different types of products, teams, uh, skill sets. And I think it really made an impact in some ways on me. And I always knew I was going to do something. And, and my husband and I had been talking about it for a very long time. So we kind of always knew we were going to do something by ourselves. We didn't know what, we didn't know when, we didn't know where, we didn't know how, we didn't know anything but I also just think we are very, um, you know, if, if I, if I uh, 
maybe had to tell you the story of how we decided to just start. Uh, it was literally 2012, December. Uh, I, it was Christmas. I was at my brother's place in North Carolina. Uh, my daughter was one or two. Uh, we literally woke up one morning and we said, why don't we just go back home? That was it. We went back to the Bay Area, Jan 2nd, we called the movers. Jan 7th, the house was cleaned out, uh, put on a ship with a container to move to India. And by Jan 27th, I was already home. Uh, so, and it was very impulsive. It was, we were like, okay, let's just do this, right? And, and what drove me to really do this is a lot of things. Um, one, I always knew I was going to build something. I didn't always know what it was. Two, there were very specific problems in AI back then, where everything was in is in was in like the science labs. We were all in the form of controlled experiments, and you know, we I was really wanting to take a lot of that out of those environments and bring it out into mainstream market. Right, that story looks very different today in 2021 when almost everything is mainstream and startup. Uh, but it looked very, very different back then in 2013, 2014, when we began that journey. And, uh, you know, I'm also driven by the fact that I believe people should create AI, not just consume AI. Like, I believe that people shouldn't just be using TikTok or Netflix and just be privy to what's being thrown at you. You should actually participate in creating AI. So I'm also very driven by uh, creating an ecosystem of people that are participating in the creation of AI. So on that, we actually had another member, a um, few members actually, who wanted to know, how do you actually, and by you, we literally mean you here, juggle a career um, and also your, you know, your own personal goals without compromising on either? We had a lot of questions about your journey. <laughs> Think uh, I do compromise. I compromise between these two all the time. I don't think it's possible to do everything without compromising on either one. I, I don't believe in this idea of work-life balance. And by that, I'll tell you, there is no balance. It's always lopsided at some point in time, right? Uh, I moved back to India. I had my second child and I started up the same month, right? Literally, that was the order of things. And I'd never lived in India through my adult life. I literally left uh, right after my undergrad at 1920. And I came back at like 30 something. I don't even remember anymore. Uh, and my daughter had not really visited India. Like it took us a couple of years to settle her down. By the time we already had the second one, we started up. It was a complete mess. And I remember, you know, literally first four years, I don't remember sleeping at all. My kids were really bad through the night. Um, but it also helped because that meant you could continue to work. 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., you're also working. Um, and your child is awake. So it was one of those things where all I knew was work, right? It was either work around the children or work around the startup. And that's all I did for about four to five years. So there was no balance of any kind. You just did whatever was needed at that point. If the child need, needed to go to the doctor in the middle of a work day, then that's what you did. And uh, if you needed to attend to work and a customer call in the middle of the night, then that's what you did, right? So today I think things look very different. Um, I am much more structured today than I ever was at the beginning of this journey. I am sitting at a desk where, first of all, I should turn a light on. Um, I am sitting at a desk where um, I have about four different kinds of journals that I keep. One is a monthly journal, one is a weekly journal, one is a quarterly journal. I organize like a maniac. Uh, um, and it's really important for me because I can't miss a beat right um i track how i feel i track what state of mind i am in i track uh, things that concern me i have a book that where i just keep thoughts and i have a book where i just keep ideas um it's how life works i, I think this uh, i have a garden i spent all the through the pandemic starting up a garden and now it looks like a forest within a year i never dealt with plants my whole life um i play badminton i this year, I've been ridiculously good at going to bed early. I don't go to bed after 11 anymore. Uh, things So from a balanced perspective, I think it's important to kind of let go of any sense of control when you're starting something new. I am of the camp that you should just do whatever the hell it takes. 
um, if you really wanted to succeed. It, yeah, everything comes at a cost. And so you just have to decide the price you're willing to pay. That's it. And I think every, every person has their own threshold for the price they're willing to pay for what they want. And you just have to decide what your price is and you just have to make sure you pay and commit to it and pay. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine too. But you just, you know, don't beat yourself over it. That's a choice you made. So I don't think this balance thing is, is, is about things being even. It's about doing the right thing at the right time, right? And you kind of know. Um, there are there used to be weeks when, uh, you know, I used to travel like crazy. Um, there was a period I remember when my daughter was two and I was like in Germany and calling her and she would not say hello to me for the whole week because she would just be like, I don't, I, I'd rather pretend like my mom's not around rather than like look at her at Skype and then like break down and cry. And she would wait for me to come back. And then after I came back, she would not leave me at all. And I wouldn't go to work for two weeks straight. It's like it, things balance out eventually. It's very hard to screw up. Uh, you know, I think as long as you're committing to the goal that you set, um, things work out. Oh, that definitely touched a chord with me for sure. Uh, especially the part where I thought I'm the only one who keeps multiple journals. So this has been very reassuring. So thank you for that. Um, Kirtana in the chat box has uh, a question around your approach to novel ideas and patents, actually. So Kirtana, do you want to unmute yourself and ask Ashwini? Hey, Ashwini. Just very moving your story. So um, oh. I have always thought about this. So whenever we have a new idea for product or, you know, anything like that, uh, how important is it to actually get it patented or like, what was your approach and uh, do you have patents? <laughs> And, uh, and, and how important is it, you know, in general scenario? You know, not anymore. I really don't. Um, you know, uh, we obviously we have patents in the company, but uh, I think people hyped it up so much when we started the company and it's like, it's pretty chill. <laughs> I just, I don't see SaaS companies at 200 million ARR talking about patents, like nobody cares. So at some level, I think, Yes, it can be a really powerful moat if, if you're doing something that nobody else is doing and you think it's a moat, uh, I think, sure, why not, right? Um, but I don't know that in today's day and age, I feel like the market is at a very different place than it used to be. Um, so I'm not so sure it applies so much, right? If you're creating a new concoction for some beauty product, of course, patent, patent away, right? If you're creating an, something like, you know, if you're building an... Um, an engine of some kind that nobody's ever built before, sure, like patent away, right? But other than that, not today. In today's day and age, it, it, I do due diligence of so many companies as an angel investor. And uh, no, I don't, like, that's not really something that comes up. I think moats are very powerful when you figure out why someone wants your product right? Today, those moats can't always be patented, right? It's all about distribution. It's all about having the right product, like people really working with you for a particular reason that you are very good at that other people are not, right? So I think it's more important to think moats than patents. Yeah. Got it. Thanks. Sure. So I'm just going to go back to a few of the other questions that we received, Ashwini. Um, a lot of members wanted to know the actual difference between building a B2C and a B, like between B2B and B2C SaaS products. And, you know, how should PMs or just your team change their approach based on the end user and just navigating that a little bit? Um, well, first of all, we build a B2B company, so we are not a B2C company. Um, what I can tell you is uh, um, how I evaluate B2C companies that come my way. And maybe I can tell you a little bit about friends or other people that I've seen start B2C companies. Um, I think it's really important to understand what kind of a product you're selling, right? Like this is stuff that you read in the books and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you are actually doing it. Uh, your product is only, and it's a hard thing to really let it register in your head that your products are only as good as the consumption and the distribution. And that's a really hard thing to understand until you've really gone through that process, right? Your, the value of your company, the value of whatever you're building is only as good as someone's consumption of it 
someone willing to tell someone else about it and that person also willing to consume it <laughs> that's that's really all it comes down to if you think about it in the grand scheme of things right so starting off by building something i think your decisions product design and i've noticed this right whether it's product design product management talent is not easy to come by in india at all yeah. uh, this thinking is really hard to come by in india and uh, um, you know or the other but but i'll tell you where i have seen people uh, really powerfully play in the b2c world is people get distribution ceos and founders and teams that get distribution make up for the lack of true understanding of like some kind of merchandise mix or product a uh, very specific product focus thing because you can make make up if you have a scarcity in the market and you have a really clear demand you can actually make up for it by designing your organization and distribution so your product is actually the distribution it's not what you're selling it's how you're selling that becomes the product over there right i've seen in a lot of cases with the b2c guys that's the case right in in b2c it it really does feel like how you deliver something to someone and how do you hook them up onto it and get them to keep using that over and over again like that's really the product right and finding people that truly get that and know how to design for that it's uh, i think is a is a i don't know how people do it because i find it so hard to find come across the skill set right to begin with um on the b2b side again b2b is very very different right because uh, again if you're doing very product led growth the approach to the kind of products you build everything is self serve everything is you know you got to come easily serve it up it has to solve an immediate need that you have right uh, so many products come to mind um you know your hr tools your crm tools right uh, all of those come to mind on the enterprise side if you are building deep tech enterprise type companies your product is really how you interface with these really large corporations that's the product right and obviously they have to find value in what you're selling obviously but some days trust me as someone who sells into enterprise some days it feels like it doesn't matter what you're selling like you just have to keep those people on the other side happy right because these are guys in really large corporations that um so it kind of goes back to that question around how do you do enterprise sales right uh, once you hook someone i think enterprise sales is all about making them feel extremely special right and you got to put the right systems in place because it's all about bureaucracy that's what large corporations are about and you got to figure out how to navigate that bureaucracy deal with that and and i think it it works very differently than product led growth right so i think asking i don't think product means the same to everything i think there are different types of product i think distribution is a product i think what you're selling is a product i think the app is a product i think your website is a product um how you design your customer engagement teams that is a product you got to think about it from that perspective so it's a little bit of a meta answer but i hope that helps no definitely and we've got a few in the chat box actually i absolutely love how many candid <laughs> questions there are and you are answering them even more so candidly so um okay i think i'm going to sakshi since there was a plus one to your question do you want to unmute yourself and ask ashwini Hi Ashwini. Hi everyone. Thank you. Uh, so, like for early stage B two B SaaS startups, who are especially AI based, uh, when you get your first big funding and you know the amount is limited and you have to prioritize a lot of things, how do you decide which areas to focus on? Is it PR, hiring, scaling your product, or what is the first big step step that you take care of? Yeah, I mean not PR. I can tell you that much. Don't spend any money on PR. Um. because today content platforms are so good that you can get your message anywhere you want without spending a single dollar on pr or pr company so i just want to say that don't ever tell anybody in a pr company that i said that please but please don't um i think especially early stage it's really important to figure out distribution of your product i think that's where you should be putting all your energy on i think uh, hiring yes is important is very important but hiring in early stages is like you want some key hitters and once you get those key hitters you don't need too many people the key hitters will help you get there because they're all wearing multiple hats right so i think hiring is important in uh, as much as it solves that problem of the key people that are going to get you there to the next milestone that's it i find a lot of companies over hiring in the early stages now largely because of the availability of money um i don't think that's a great idea um i think it 
you know you got to ask yourself what happens when you don't make it and you got to let go of them right it's not a great feeling to begin with so i think hiring is as important in 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 that it gets you those key people up front but i think everything else should be about how do you get your product to get to pmf right uh, and 0 to 1 is not always pmf 1 to 5 is is a good sign of pmf um and 5 to 10 is all about scale right so i think investing in getting to product market fit and getting to uh, the right kind of distribution figuring out those systems that can where you can put this money in the same place again and again until yield exactly what you what you know it will right getting to that level of confidence so spending there i think is more important than spending on anything else how do you did you also did you also have that question or how do you sustain it and be build a profitable business i don't know that everybody wants to build a profitable business you eventually do there's so much venture money out there who wants to build profitable businesses today and i think and i don't say that with a lot of i don't say that in a sassy snarky way at all trust me uh, if it came across that way it's just because i'm probably tired but it's one of those things where i think there's money available and i want to tell i mean this looks like an all women thing just go grab that money like you know every other male guy standing on the road has decided to start a company and go grab that money you can think about profitability later invest in growth grow your company to a point where you know it can actually take off um and uh, you know profitability will come if you're building the company the right way that's going to be my key takeaway from today <laughs> go get that money go get that money <laughs> Um Sanya you have a question do you want to unmute yourself and ask Ashwini Sure thanks um so Ashwini as you were speaking earlier about you know um uh, maybe the AI ecosystem is considerably changed and that move to market is happening a lot quicker than it was happening a couple of years ago um does that concern you in terms of you know the racism or the sexism or sort of the AI ethics concerns that are being built into these data sets as we're adopting AI across the board Yeah no of course right i mean but i feel like if i had to answer that question very honestly i'll maybe start off by saying i'm more concerned about what we go through every day in the real world i still think we're a little ways with dealing with systems that are going to be um biasing uh, and you really have to ask yourself these systems are not acting by themselves they're acting because the people are that way and uh, it's a bit of a chicken and egg you can try and go and fix the systems but then who's building those systems is those people that are building those systems these systems are not magically coming out of nowhere and we haven't even figured out how to fix the people how are we going to fix those systems and so you know i feel like each one of us i'll tell you like my philosophy has been build a bubble where this bias can can you can try to create a bubble where this bias doesn't exist and i feel like that's what this company allows me to do it gives me control over creating that little bubble where i think there are 300 people and hopefully 500 people and then hopefully 1000 people where that bias will not exist and we can build systems where those biases won't exist because the people are not biased and the culture is not biased and i feel like uh, bottoms up is the only way to make change so yes i'm concerned about ai systems but i'm more concerned about the people that and the world that we live in <laughs> because that's really the reason why those ai systems exist to begin with so i would say the better place for us to start is small places where we can make change and be in control of and create smaller systems where things can be really impactful um even if on a small scale and if you succeed then it can succeed in a larger scale i think sejal and tracy had a similar question to you sanya because they want to know the kind of ethical dilemmas um that ashwini you've dealt with i think you've uh, answered that fairly well um okay so we do have 10 minutes to go um ashwini does has been nice enough to give us 5 minutes extra so i'm going to try and take as many questions possible but padmaja uh, would you want to unmute yourself and ask your next question yeah uh, hey hi ashwini uh yeah. amazing session and uh, so my question is more around like how did you go about finding the right co-founder and uh did you stick with the idea that you began with or you pivoted a lot i mean i'm in like early stage of my career just like graduated in 2018 but i i'm like driven of my own so i want to understand those early uh, stages of your career yeah. you... sure so i mean it's a joke i'm going to make a joke here obviously you don't know who my co-founder is my co-founder is my husband 
Uh, I found him when I was 18. So, hey, I'm very good at hiring, I think. Uh, I saw this uh, easily. Like what? Uh, we, we met when I was 18 and we started the company when I was 34. So, foresight. Have foresight. Marry the guy you want as your co-founder. Um, not really. Um, I, I think I help a lot of companies that I angel invest in. Um, in terms of you know finding co-founders and one of the top things that I tell anybody is um, make sure you have one this journey you can't survive it alone it's hard and uh, I watch a lot of companies with co-founders go through this where in some cases the co-founder situation is there is clearly the alpha founder and the co-founder is thankful to be a part of that journey right and 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 you can find people like that or you can find equal people who are equally invested in it, where the co-founders are very clearly equally invested. In both cases, you want to make sure that this is something that it's literally like a marriage. There's no other way to put it. Um, you don't want to be in a situation where it's not working out and stuck in there and it's awful for everyone. But at the same time, you want to make sure that things work out, right? You want to optimize for things working out. Um, and uh, so I think finding a co-founder. And when I look at all of these companies that are making it, these startups, right? All these guys come out of the colleges with their co-founders. Basically, by the time they've graduated and they've gone like or done their grad school or like worked somewhere, like by the time they're 22, 23, they're still, they're basically starting companies with their buddies, right? That's what's going on everywhere. Um, there are rare cases where people go and hunt for or be a part of networks where they find, but that's a little harder because you need history with this person, right? And you need a right sense that this is going to work out. Um, so that's that's the unfortunate thing because I think, you know, these guys come out of IIT Delhi, IIT Bombay, this place, and then basically up prayer they just come as one group state from hostel room to, you know, guest house to mom and dad's place to start up, uh, you know, whatever that is. So it's broadly how it works. I would say, I wish all of us did more of that. Um, that's that's one thing that I want to say. Other than co-founders, in terms of early stage challenges, I think it's really important to have a very clear idea and pick a small thing. If I really start to look at the kinds of startups that, which is the polar opposite of the company that I've built, by the way, so just a heads up. Uh, we didn't start with a small idea. We started with, oh my God, we want to make the whole world filled with AI natives. And we definitely paid the price in terms of how complex that, that um uh, that goal was, uh, but then if you have the right minds, if you have the right mindset, there's like one Tam person who caught me say one Tamil word, and she's like, "I'm so excited that you said it." Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but um, I think it's really important to have a singular idea, right? If you look at Plum, Plum headquarters today, right, which is um, like they sell insurance for other B2B companies. If you look at Darwin Box, which does like one thing, which is like HR for for um, you know uh, startups. If you look at Chargebee, which does like help you with subscription billing. If you look at any SaaS company out there, out of India, does like one thing, massive TAM, go after, build that one thing and build in that space. Zenoti, like I don't even know about that company. Like they build software for spas. I was like, what? And, and you're like, well, that's how many spas there are in the US, heads up. And you just sit up and go, huh? I didn't even know that market existed. So there are a lot of very, very deep markets. And I think early stage figuring out very deep markets that you can go cater to with a simple SaaS product that will fill in that scarcity, a real need is, 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 I would say, the best way to go. Simply just increase your odds of success. That's it. That is it right? Um, if you take Rocket Lane, it's run by my friend. He used to do, uh, he already had a startup which got bought by Girish at Freshworks and now he's come out and started up his own company. And I kept wondering often like how Rocket Lane is almost the same as Freshworks, how are these guys like exist? And then you realize, no, Rocket Lane addresses like one tiny bit, which is customer onboarding. You sell to a customer and you have to onboard that customer there is no freshwork suite. There are no, there's no gain site. There's nothing for that part of the funnel, which is onboarding your customers. There's no nothing in that part. And they now have a SaaS company for that. And it's and you should see how he's growing. And so I think it's really all about being that way, I think, and thinking that way, which I think I definitely failed when I started the company. Um, 
And thankfully, though, like our DNA allowed us to hold us together with the enterprise, solving big problems, big companies, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we somehow managed to make it to the other side and survive and then scale and grow. And now we are where we are. But there were times when I sat up and went like, oh, my God, these are a lot of bad decisions for someone. And, and they are bad decisions if, you're, if it's a bad day. And if it's not a bad day, you sit up and go, I have the, I, this is what I set out to do. Um, you know, I wanted to build an AI platform on top of which you could build just about anything. And this is the price I have to pay. And I chose to move to Chennai, not do it out of SF. Um, and I chose to, so there's a lot of those questions, right? Like, so, so given a set of choices, try to make sure that at least a couple of them are simpler choices. Not everything is challenging, right? And I chose to do it moving to India while having a second child, while moving. <laughs> and I sometimes look back, I go, hmm, I could have done a lot of things to make my life a little bit more easy. Uh, so I would say early days, just make sure. And, and for me, what worked is the fact that we got to do as a, as a couple, right? So I didn't have to think children, company, this, that. I didn't have to think any of that. We just did it all together that made it easier, right? So, so make sure your choices, you pick at least a couple of things that are easy on you. Thank you. That was an amazing reply. Yeah. I'm going to take the last two questions, uh, Pooja and then uh, Monal, of course, because that's also plus one. So, Pooja, do you want to go first? Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you for uh, having this session. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, so, my question is mostly you talked about um, uh, you were able to spot some industry trends and, like, you know, in the field of AI and you're able to provide solutions for that, right? So in the current times, what are the next set of solutions that one should eye for in terms of um, opportunities and um, uh, basically in different industry sectors? I mean, what would be the next set of problems that one should like maybe have an eye for? Yeah. There's so many markets, I think, where interesting things are happening. I think the HR market is one to look out for. This talent issue is going to go nuts in the next 10 years. So I think uh, people management, uh, systems that allow people to come together. I think we're going to see a lot of different types of social apps. I think we're going to see a lot of different types of chat, very different kind from WhatsApp and the likes. I think there are, um, on the B2B side, I think uh, anywhere where, again, <laughs> the pet spas and spas are a deep market. So I just want to say that, you know, there are days, I just think it's about being smart about it, right? Like go and take the time to look up, like where is the need, right? And spend some time, like it's best to build a company around an area that you have muscle in somehow, in, in some way, right? And just figure out where you have muscle. Like in some cases, it could literally be like, look at ultra human, right? Like everybody's talking about ultra human right now. Um, everybody's talking about those D2C brands right now, right? Like you're able to see so much happening in the world of wow, skincare and and what is that? Dot and key and and there's so much going on right now in India. There is so much going on right now that it feels like there is no dearth of opportunities in terms of categories, right? You can build one in finance, you can build one in uh, teaching, like, you know, and I don't mean education in the in the Baiju sense of the word, I mean, in the sense of skill sets, right? <laughs> Excuse me, like Skillshare kind of companies, like everybody's trying to build something around that. There's D2C brands you can start. There's, there's um, you know, um, clearly trading. Everybody wants to trade um, in the public markets right now. Everybody's a retail investor. Uh, lots of new types of social networks, uh, insurance. Uh, I could go on all day. It feels like... It feels like there's no bad category anymore. It's 2021. There's money on the road. There's a VC standing at the corner of your road with a bag of money. <laughs> Go get his money and then think about what idea you want to sell him. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. There's a lot of pointers there. Thanks. On that note, I am going to take the last question from Monal. Monal, do you want to unmute yourself and ask? Uh, hi, Ashwini. So uh, when it comes to a SaaS product, there's a lot of upfront depth software development expenditure that goes into it. Uh, I'm sure, you know, in enterprise sales, it ultimately depends on where the conversation goes. But in the beginning, how do you create a baseline for your pricing that this is my price? And how do you how do you define a model that do you want to go with an enterprise model or do you want to go with a per user model? 
Yeah, I think there are lots of benchmarks in the market for anything. That's the best place to start, I've found, when it comes to pricing, right? When you have something to sell, the first question you ask is, what is it replacing? Is it replacing a competitor market? Then the, your incumbents have already decided and set the tone for what, the, what they're selling. It's either seats or it's usage or it's something else, right? So there is already enough benchmarks in the market. If it's not a competitive market and there's actually not a whole lot and it's basically human labor, right? Let's just take the case of... Uh, if you have to go out, let's take out something like Urban Club, right? Like you have to go out there and find your own service on the streets. You got to go look up a map and go someplace versus like having someone come to you, right? So if you're changing the model entirely, then you'll have to think about how the pricing changes, right? This is how it is in the market today versus I'm creating an entirely new system that replaces or displaces an existing system completely. And it's not an incumbent market. Then I think you have the luxury to come up with your own model and then test it. Uh, third, I would say, you know, it's really important to consider the difference between value and usage. Uh, you can either um, uh, charge based on the value someone gets, or you can charge based on how much someone use uses something, right? So if there's continuous use required for your products, where there's hundreds of millions of API calls, chances are it's a great idea to kind of measure, I mean, price something based on, on usage. If it's number of seats, right? Like I just need 10 HR people per company to join this. I need 100 employees per company to join this. Then it makes sense to do it per seat. And if it's purely based on a bunch of features and enterprise style in your typical custom mode and you, it's really all about the features that people get, then it's better to price it based on this. And I think the one thing that I tell everybody is experiment and get feedback, right? Price it a certain way with a customer, they're going to be like, oh, but I get so-and-so. Be ready to like back it up and say, here's why it is this way it is, right? And, uh, you know, you have to be ready with losing customers with these experiments, people who are not willing to see it your way. And then if three people continuously have refused to see it your way, maybe it's feedback that it's not working. So, you know, change your model and, and shamelessly even go back. We do it all the time. We go back to customers and say, hey, our pricing model has changed. This is how it is. You know, does this work for you, right? So I think it's, it's just like pricing is also a product. <laughs> just like your organization is a product. You've got to iterate, you've got to test, and you've got to see whether it works and then decide what sticks in the long run. Understood. Thank you so much. I think I'm going to take one last question by Vandana because she wanted to know uh, what is your favorite. Uh, actually, Vandana, why don't you just ask Ashwini yourself before we let I got my question. Actually, got lost. Sorry, there's the link or the lights. I'll see them over here. Firstly, I uh, really loved the session today. Ashwini, thanks a lot for dropping all of those gold mine uh, takeaways for us. Uh, so, my question was more of a curiosity one. Just wanted to know, other than your own product, what is your personal AI based? enterprise product, uh, something that does a fab job at solving a complex business problem and uh, chatbots not allowed. Oh, wow. You know, I'm, let me start off by saying I use a 2014 iPhone. <laughs> I am horrible. My TV is about, it's like a pretty big TV, but it's gone with me from Portland to five homes across California to Bangalore to six homes in Chennai over the last 10 years. I'm like one of those types. Um, uh, so yeah, what kind of AI product really keeps me? Um, wow. Wow, do I use it can be something that you you don't even use, but you know you just it just kind well, of. Well, I think you know. Well, we my kids use Alexa, and I absolutely hate it from the core of my heart. I hate Alexa, so maybe I should get that out of the way. Uh, she's always listening when I don't think she's listening. My kids and I and all of us are sitting and talking, and suddenly she's answering a question that had nothing to do with her because somebody plugged it in and forgot to plug it out. So those are the kinds of AI products that I despise. Um, the kinds of pro AI products that I like, uh, you know. I'll give you a very simple example. I don't know why I'm just kind of blanking out here, but a simple example for me, like Google's autocomplete is the example of AI that really just, that I love, right? It's, it's, it's subtle, it's classy, it's telling you that while you're asking this question, here are the top five other things people are asking on the same topic. You know that this is the sentiment of the world. These are the questions that people are asking. I get to learn so much by asking a simple question on Google and I haven't even seen the answers yet. Just by looking at the predictive thing that's telling me what else is going on, I think it's, and, and that is the kind of AI that I, I really like. 
which is not like shoving it in my face, telling me what to do, controlling my life. I think the kind that allows me to discover, the kind that allows me to like know something that I didn't know before. Uh, if Google search ever became paid, I would probably like pay for it. Um, <laughs> just because I think it constantly, it orients me in the grand scheme of things, right? Like I know what's happening in the world, how many other questions are asking, how does, and then I know the first five things will tell me like what the world is thinking right now. Uh, and I love that. So those are the kinds of AI systems that I, that I love the most. There are lots of utilitarian AI systems, obviously, you know, ones that tell you how you're feeling, how much you've walked, what you should be doing, very prescriptive ones. I don't, I'm not a big fan of prescriptive AI systems. I'm a big fan of systems that allow me to kind of discover something that I didn't know before. Love the answer. Title uh, and useful. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for taking the time, everybody. This was great, Ashwini. Thank you so much. Uh, I think we've thoroughly enjoyed the session. Um, and thank you, members, for literally going at it and asking all your questions, which Ashwini was so kind to be so candid about. Um, we'll see you for the next one. Thank you again, Ashwini. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank yeah. you.